Life is busy, especially if you've got a very important podcast to host. If you want fewer trips to the grocery store and a freezer full of meat, get ButcherBox. They've got incredible deals on high-quality meat and seafood, and it's delivered right to your door. You can customise your ButcherBox plan, and they'll throw in recipes, tips, guides, and hacks. ButcherBox meat is humanely raised. There are no antibiotics or added hormones, so you can choose from grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood. And shipping is 100% free. Sign up at butcherbox.com underworld and use the code underworld to get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. That's butcherbox.com underworld and the code underworld to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. I'm Lola Blanc. And I'm Megan Elizabeth. And we're the hosts of Trust Me, the podcast about cults, extreme belief, and the abuse of power. Now on Podcast One. We're real-life cult survivors. And we're here to tell you anyone can join a cult. If you've ever dived headfirst into a new self-help program, or believed wholeheartedly in a spiritual practice, or even just trusted someone with your life, guess what? You're just as susceptible as everyone else. No one is safe, especially not Megan. I'm the most susceptible. We want to debunk the myth that people who join cults are uneducated or naive or broken because anyone can be manipulated by a narcissist or feel good in a new group they've joined and we should know we both have been join us every week as we explore the world of extreme belief talk to survivors and experts and share our own experiences with cults and the abuse of power don't be fooled you might be next get new episodes of trust me every wednesday on podcast one spotify apple podcasts and anywhere you get your podcasts It's the late 1980s in the Mexican town of Agua Prieta, a border town just across from Douglas, Arizona. Quiet place, under 100,000 folks, not much beyond a few factories. And then cowboys arrive, dripping in wealth, dressed in expensive clothes and driving SUVs, with place from Sinaloa, a state hundreds of miles south. Houses, stores and cinemas all pop up, and suddenly, sleepy little Agua Prieta is a boomtown. Everybody knows who these guys are. They're the latest incarnation of a drug war that's destroyed lives all over Mexico for decades. But this is something different. When a lawyer named Rafael Camarena Macias said he's building a swimming pool at a pad right on the border, no one really bats an eyelid. Until the hole in the backyard is mysteriously filled back up. But that house on the border, or more accurately, what's beneath it, is about to start fueling one of the biggest drug smuggling networks that has ever existed. And the guy who owns it is about to become public enemy number one. Welcome to the Underworld Podcast. So, hey guys, uh, I'm your host, Sean Williams, and uh, I'm joined today not by Danny Gold, but journalist Noah Hurowitz, who's been submerged in a life of El Chapo for like three years now. I mean, you must be thrilled to spend another hour or so talking about him, Noah. I'm always thrilled to talk about El Chapo, to be honest. <laughs> cool. Well, glad to hear it. Um, Noah got first onto El Chapo reporting his trial for Rolling Stone in New York City in 2018, which ended like nine months later, was it? Or how long was the trial? It was like, it was like three months um, of sort of daily hearings until it was like November 2018 to February 2019. He was found guilty February 12th. And then... A few months later, like in uh, 
June or July, he was, uh, he was sentenced to life in prison, but it was, uh, it felt like nine months. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and you've got a book coming out. Uh, I think when we're recording this, I think it's like this week. Um, and the book's called El Chapo, the untold story of the world's most infamous drug lord. Um, and you were out in Mexico a ton, spoke to loads of family members, associates, friends, agents. It's like really deeply reported. I had a blast reading it. Loved it. Um, and I know a lot of our listeners will already know a ton about El Chapo. So we're going to focus on one of the untold parts of his life that your book gets into in this pod, uh, which is his early life and how this boy from a tiny village in the middle of nowhere suddenly rose to become like the biggest narco in Mexico, one of the biggest in the world. So uh, welcome to the show, Noah. Um, and yeah, tell me a little bit more about how you kind of got involved in the trial, how it led to this book, because... I mean, reading a book, reporting that trial sounds absolutely frantic. Like, I'm surprised you survived it without going crazy. I, I'm not sure I did. Um, <laughs> and I, it still feels like it's kind of it's still going. Um, I, I had covered some uh, domestic drug policy in the United States uh, prior to the trial. But I really, um, you know, I really got lucky getting the gig covering the trial for, for Rolling Stone. Um, and it was, uh, you know... It, it was just day in, day out madness. You know, um, when you when you cover anything in um, federal court in the U.S., you can't have like a phone or a laptop or anything, a recording device in the courtroom. Uh, and so, you know, I was taking notes by hand for eight hours a day, which was, Oof. you know, I, I sort of reacquainted myself with my handwriting, which I look back <laughs> at my notes sometimes. And like, luckily, I have pretty good recall, so I can kind of remember what the hell I meant by something. Um, but like, yeah, it was, it was a lot, you know, I, I, my, my hands were constantly cramping up and it just felt like being in this little like spaceship almost, you know, just like, like sort of like sealed off. Like, to, I mean, to get into the courthouse, you needed to get in line. Um, you needed to go through metal detectors at the like downstairs. And there was like a national guard unit there with like a Geiger counter for like radiation what? just in case. <laughs> yeah. And there was like snipers on the roof and, you know, then we would, you know, we would go up to the, um, the press room, drop off our stuff and, uh, and then go upstairs and have to go through another metal detector where we would have to take off our shoes. You know, it was like going, going to the airport every day, at least like four times a day, you know? Jesus. Um, and so, yeah, it, it really, it really was uh pretty wild by the end of it. Like, you know, around the jury, uh, the when we were waiting for the the jury verdict, we were we were getting there like earlier and earlier in the morning to sort of get in line uh, in in hopes of actually getting into the the, the courtroom and not just uh -huh. the overflow room for the eventual verdict because we wanted to see the reaction or whatever. And uh, you know, after like two nights of getting there, like you know, working until eleven p.m., sleeping for two hours, and then getting up and going to the courthouse at four a.m. Uh, I just ended up like grabbing a grabbing a sleeping bag and a piece of cardboard and uh, just sleeping outside the courthouse one night. Uh, it, it was like it was unreal. Oh, I mean, it's giving me it's bringing me out in cold sweats about doing court reporting years ago. <laughs> I can't even imagine how that was for you. Um, it was and, and, uh, just before we get going. I should say to our listeners as well. Uh, all the usual stuff, subscribing, and there's the Patreon still going, and I think we're going to be sticking some sort of bonus stuff up with uh, Noah after this pod. And uh, remember to rate us, guys, because that really helps, actually. We're just figuring as, this all out. Me and Danny have no idea. 
as one of the uh, as one of the early Patreon subscribers, oh, uh, I'll, I'll tell you guys it was it's 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 been worth it. So you should uh, you should sign up. That was that was unscripted as well, guys. That was <laughs> um, so. I mean, I guess this pod's going to sound a little weird to you now because, like, basically, it's going to be reading me reading some of your book back to you. Um, but I, I guess before we get out to your experience in Mexico, let's start way way back before. The 19th century, even when Sinaloa, which is this like thin, uh, long Mexican state that borders the Gulf of California, um, by already the mid 1800s, it's this place known for smuggling and banditry, and it even has its own kind of patron saint. I mean, would you call him that? This guy named Jesus or Jesus Malverde? Yeah, so Jesus Malverde is this really interesting character from like late. 19th century, early 20th century Mexico. He was, it, it wouldn't, it's not entirely clear if he was a real person. He, he, he seems to be sort of a composite of several different bandits. Um, but the, the legend is that he, his, his parents died of starvation and he sort of swore revenge against the dictatorship um, of Porfirio Diaz. Uh, and he would, you know, rob, uh, rob merchants and, give to the poor and he's sort of had this, you know, he developed this sort of reputation as like a Robin hood. Right. And mm. he was eventually, uh, the legend goes that he was eventually caught and hanged, uh, and sort of just, you know, buried in a shallow grave and that peasants who revered him started to sort of leave like little rocks on the side of his grave that became these mm. cairns. And it became this site of almost like pilgrimage. And there's now this shrine to Jesus Malverde in um, Culiacan, which is the capital city of, of Sinaloa. And people leave little offerings there for luck, you know, in, in crossing the border, in um, business, uh, in, uh, in drug smuggling as well. And he's, he's often mentioned sort of in context with El Chapo because, you know, El Chapo is now the the sort of like best known native son of mm. of Sinaloa, and I think that that's really interesting, and that's something that I sort of like tackle head on in sort of the the, the first part of my book is I wanted to sort of confront this idea of El Chapo and other drug traffickers as these sort of um, like the, the the boy in academic term for it is like social bandits, oh. you know these these sort of as sort of like rebels or or outlaws. And what what I found, you know, in in my research, um, you know, and there's been a lot of really good scholarship on this, is that drug traffickers really weren't and aren't necessarily the outlaws that we might think of them to be, at least not in Mexico. They actually occupy this this sort of curious and really important role in areas like Sinaloa, where they had this sort of constantly renegotiated relationship with the state where they functioned as sort of a, a, a method of control over, over peasant communities. You know, they, um, they meted out violence when need be, but they also, you know, the, the, the largesse of, of drug trafficking provided sort of inflated wages for, for peasants and prevented, you know, agitation, prevented, um, mm. you know, uh, social turmoil that might otherwise have arisen. And so, 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 you know, rather than being opposed to the state, I view drug traffickers as, 
you know, particularly in the 20th century in Mexico, as being sort of uh, a really key pillar of support for the uh, regime that that ruled Mexico from you know 1930 right. to, to 2000. Yeah, um, and, and and we're going to get into a bunch of that later on as well in this show. Um, but it's like kind of incredible how this one state. Um, more accurately, I guess it's like a bunch of towns and villages in the state's interior. Um, how this like tiny area has birthed some of the most brutal drug lords in history, really. Um, you've got El Azul, the brothers Beltran Lieba. Uh, I thought my Spanish would be better after like two weeks <laughs> in Spain, but it's still shit. Uh, El Chapo and of course El Mayo, this current leader of the Sinaloa cartel. Um, and by all accounts, the, the cartel seems to be going pretty strong even after the arrests the battles, the escapes, the interviews with Sean Penn, um, the trial and conviction. I mean, they, they seem to be doing all right these days still, right? Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll get into my, my quibbles with the, the whole terminology of, of cartels and mm-hmm. uh, all that. But, I, you know, basically, yeah, you know, the, the arrest of El Chapo, um, it led to a certain shakeup in Sinaloa and there was a fair amount of pretty brutal violence in um, 2017, shortly after he was extradited. But for the most part, uh, yeah, I mean, the the organized crime in Sinaloa is still very strong. Um, mm. And actually, like, you know, Sinaloa is actually more calm than a lot of uh, other areas of Mexico because there's less infighting and there's less sort of, you know, there's fewer... You know, there's a lot of different factions of what we what we refer to as the Sinaloa cartel, mm-hmm. but in general, there's less competition between sort of atomized, um, you know, organized crime groups it, it, like like what we see in Guerrero or Guanajuato or Tamaulipas, where there's like you know a lot of competition, a lot of fighting, and a lot of violence that is really inflicted on on innocent people. You know, extortion, kidnapping, disappearances. Um, that all happens in Sinaloa but to a lesser degree than what we see in other places. And the reason for that is just that, you know, the the people who are running um, organized crime networks in Sinaloa are, they have stronger connections with the state. They mm-hmm. have, um, you know, more support among people. And um, yeah, and, you know, the, the arrest and extradition of, of El Chapo didn't really change all that much. Yeah, I mean, that was something that I was really struck by reading your book, It actually, is the kind of, you know, hand-in-glove situation with the state and narcos. But, um, yeah, I, as for as for El Chapo, um, Joaquin Alquivado Guzman Loera uh, is born in 1957, and he grows up with four brothers and two sisters in the tiny little village of Latuna, which is really in the middle of nowhere. Like, this place is a half-day's drive from the Sinaloa state capital, Culiacan. Uh, is that correct? I, I feel like that might be good yeah. playing some games with me. I don't know. Google Maps is not the most reliable up there. <laughs> um, to, 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 get from, to get from Culiacan to La Tuna is, uh, it takes a while. You know, you drive like an hour up the state highway, and then you turn off onto a smaller state highway, that, and you drive sort of an hour up the road into the mountains to this town called Badirawato, which is um, sort of the municipal seat up there, sort of the county seat. And then you drive through uh, Badirawato and mm-hmm. you, uh, you, you go over this bridge. Um, there's, uh, and so if, as soon as you cross the bridge, you lose cell phone service. And then you drive another hour or so up that highway 
and you uh, you finally get to a little tone off, um, and then you run into the checkpoints. <laughs> and there's like <laughs> you know there's there's armed guards, and you know I, maybe I can talk about that more in a bit. But like it, it's another hour or so off that road wow. on like a dirt track that you know is can, is often impassable in the in the rainy season um and in the in the dry season you can get through pretty easy um uh, and you it's, you know up and down you really the first time i did it actually my uh, my fixer for some reason had a car that didn't have four wheel drive <laughs> and uh it was not easy i'll tell you that so yeah it is uh it is quite a hike to Latuna. Yeah, I, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was even you know in in the during the the during El Chapo's childhood. I'm sure it was you know even more difficult. Yeah, I mean you you d- described this little place. Um, it's like little horseshoe shaped town with this pretty red pagoda that El Chapo built for his mother, and this blue and white church that was also bought with his cash. Um, did you did you have permission from the guys? Did you have to sort of you know call it in when you went to Latuna? Like, how did that all go down? So I I worked with a um, with a fixer named uh, Miguel Angel Vega. He's the best. You know, we became we became good friends, uh, and he has sort of a standing um, a standing agreement with a resident of Latuna who is uh, related in one way or another to El Chapo's brother. Um, this guy named El Juano, who currently controls that area. And so, you know, he, Miguel will, will text his contact up there uh, and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing another good and go up there. And uh, it, when we got to that turnoff that I mentioned, um, the, the first time, you know, we were stopped by like three or four young armed men, you know, carrying like AKs and I think one, one, uh, AR 15 cool. and <laughs> they, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was that, this was my first like experience with sort of like armed non-state actors, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I was, uh, I was a little bit nervous and it was like, you know, they, they came up to the, the passenger side window and they, they, we roll down the window and they say to me like, Hey, do you speak Spanish? And I do, but I was just like, I didn't really want him asking me questions. I wanted him talking to Miguel. So I was like, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> and so then, so they're talking and, you know, uh, Miguel says, you know, we're here to see so-and-so. Um, and the guy says like, are you journalists? And he says, yes, but we're, we're just here to see so-and-so. And, you know, it wasn't quite a lie necessarily, but he wasn't, you know, I, I didn't have like a full camera get up. So he, we, we didn't have yeah. to be as like, as forthright necessarily about, yeah, we're here to do this. Um, and so, you know, they, they radioed up ahead and it came back like, yep, Miguel's good. <laughs> and so the guy, the guy turns to me and he's, he, he, uh, he, he like, I forget what it was. He said, he said like something to me. He's like, he's like, you know, what's your name? And I, and I sort of like perked up, you know, as if like, this is my sort of like, uh, you know, one, one semester of, of Spanish or something. Hey, I know how to answer that. And I'm like, my name's Noah. And, uh, and he sort of gives me this, uh, he, he sort of gives me this squint that I, I only really like later I realized that it was like, um, very similar to this thing that Larry David does in Kirby enthusiasm, where he sort of like <laughs> squints at someone yeah, for a while to see yeah. if they're lying and then goes, okay. He, like he gives me this fucking Larry David squint, uh, and he says, okay. And they let us go. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, a- after that I got more, it, it got to be pretty routine. You know, I would 
we would roll up to a checkpoint and I would like hand them cigarettes and, uh, you know, it, it, it got to be pretty, uh, I, I was less nervous after that, but yeah, it was, um, that was a real, uh, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it a trial by fire, but it's, it was a real, uh, introduction to that life. Yeah. I, I you know, cigarettes and alcohol are always the great, <laughs> yes. the great equalizers in those situations. Yeah. And, and, and a, and a yeah. shout out to Miguel, right? Because I, I think we have an ongoing mission to try and, sing the praises of fixers who are the like heroes of Germany. Yeah. Well, so, so Miguel, Miguel is the best. He, he, um, I, I met him through, um, my friend Keegan Hamilton, who, uh, works for vice. Uh-huh. Um, I know vice vice is, uh, is a public enemy on this podcast. Oh, I, I love best. vice. And I'm, I think I'm, I'm, I, I, I love vice. I think they're all okay. great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I think Danny would agree with that. Keegan is the best. Yeah. And, um, Keegan worked with Miguel on, on the vice podcast about El Chapo. And so he, he connected me with, um, with Miguel and Miguel actually has a book coming out, um, this year, uh, in Spanish called El Fixer. And it's about oh, cool. his life as a fixer. And, um, I'm actually, I'm actually, a, a friend and I are trying to, are sort of working with him to try to get it published in, in English. So if there's any, um, you know, agents or, uh, publishing people on here who are interested in sort of a memoir about the life of a fixer in Mexico, uh, get at me because I would you know yeah yes exactly yeah Yeah. um so Latuna pretty much a scratch even today um so I'm guessing like in the 60s when El Chapo's growing up there's pretty much nothing at all um and his family's pretty poor um with little other than a few heads of cattle but they're okay enough to survive um and you say in the book that's a bit it's a bit tough to prize fact from fiction when it comes to Chapo's early years, right? Because so much of it is shrouded in legend, the narco corridos and so on. Like, who did you manage to actually meet in Latuna and, and sort of what legends of El Chapo's did you manage to sort of chip away at while you were there? Well, so I, I managed to speak to an older, like an aunt or something. Um, and also like an old, like a, a cousin, of El Chapo, who um, was, I think, like a little bit older than him, uh, but they, you know, they grew up very close together. And so, speaking with this cousin, um, you know, I, I was he, he he gave me sort of the standard script. You know, El Chapo mm. was a hardworking boy. He loved his mother. He was he was industrious. He would, uh, you know, he would go d- walk down the valley selling oranges and tortillas and you know he always he always had sort of a head for business from a young age um which like (laughs) you know it it, it's fucking pr you know and i get it but in in my book what i you know i i i I quoted that part of what the guy told me um but i also mentioned like i you know i don't i don't know if any of this is is true and it's it and you know i i wasn't so interested necessarily in um in in that sort of script about what el chapo was like at a boy as a boy i was much more interested in um you know in 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 trying to understand this place and what it was like to grow up there and sort of how someone like el chapo how it influenced his later life and how it influenced who he became. Um, so, you know, I, I you know, it, for me going there, it was more important to me to get a sense of the place 
than to necessarily get sort of the same thing that they tell every Gringo journalist about what El Chapo was like as a boy. Yeah, I mean, but you know, there was and and there was you know, there's there's some debate about like you know, was his dad abusive or just lazy? Right. Like, yeah. The, the, so so yeah, but it was it was uh, I mean it was of course really interesting to to talk to these people about this. You know, imagine just this kid you grew up with becomes this like world historical figure, right? Yeah. So that was interesting, but I I wasn't too um, you know uh, I wasn't too interested in the sort of what was El Chapo like as a boy uh-huh. discussion because I I knew that they were going to sort of give me the same the same line that they give everybody, and I get it. I, I'm not mad at them, but. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you say that one of his cousins told you that, like, his dad didn't like to work too much, but he was pretty much a good person. But, but like, whatever his dad was like, the young Joaquin, he seems to be pretty ambitious, driven. He's, like, holding bits of paper made to look like banknotes and selling oranges to folks on the main highway. Um, it's pretty hard scrabble life. And according to his sister, El Chapo goes around wearing these big fake gold chains that stain his... Yeah his skin green and he boasts about stuff to his neighbors. Um, yeah. I mean, the so most, yeah. the most, the most interesting thing I think to me that I was told and that I've heard mentioned elsewhere um, is that it seems like El Chapo might have had sort of some, some bad experiences with the military when he was a young man. And that, um, you know, that sort of lines up with what was happening in the region at the time, um, I think we're going to get into this in, in a bit, but there was a lot of military activity in Sinaloa in the 1970s. And, you know, I, I was told that he got beaten up. Um, I think his sister told uh, the Vice podcast that he that he had been, you know, uh, beaten up by by the military. And so I think that 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 to me is the most instructive because it tells mm-hmm. us about sort of the, the relationship that, um, you know, not necessarily the relationship that like powerful drug traffickers had with the state, but the relationship that just these poor peasant communities who were involved in the drug trade, you know, they were growing opium, they were growing marijuana, but they were at the bottom of the food chain. And so they were the ones on whom the state would come down when they had to make it look like they were fighting the drug trade. Right. Uh, and, and so that was, that was to me, I think one of the most interesting parts was having this understanding of, of El Chapo's understanding of um, his relationship with the state. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so much of this stuff is absolutely fascinating. I, like, his story doesn't start with Coke, obviously. At first, he gets involved in weed and opium, and these things have been the region's staple exports for over a century. Um, since Mexican Chinese gangs sneaked under prohibition authorities' noses in the early 20th century. And actually, just like we learned in our Sister Ping episode a few weeks ago, there's this moral, like, giant moral panic about the Chinese around this time. And just like it hit up north, Mexico went hard against its Chinese population. It prints all these nationalist newspapers warning about a threat, and this right-wing stuff actually turns into violence in the 1920s. Uh, By 1940, there's barely a fifth of the number of Chinese Mexicans than there was in 1926. So what do the local guys do? Well, they take over the Chinese smuggling routes, of course, and they get into the opium business themselves. And in the book, you lean on this as the foundation of the Mexican cartels, kind of. So how, how important was this ethnic cleansing of Chinese in creating the model and creating the modern drug trade we see today? And, you know, how did the Mexican drug industry look back then? Was it tiered and what role did the state play in it? Yeah, so the um, 
that was actually one of the like that was one of the most interesting things that I learned in sort of it's so interesting. One of the yeah. first, yeah, one of the first books I read uh, when I was preparing for the trial was uh, Johan Grillo's um, El Narco. You know, Johan is is the mm-hmm. best. He's just he's just the man. You know, he was and he was very helpful to me in sort of the early days of trying to understand this stuff, both reading his book and and, and talking to him. And yeah, that really I didn't know about that. You know, and and so the the drug trade in mexico the sort of like legal and illegal developed in part in relation to chinese communities in mexico you know they they would sometimes grow opium for personal use as you know as 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 we may know like um opium was sort of forced on the chinese by the yeah. by the british um so yeah. it's not fair to say <laughs> that like that they were responsible for it but by this point you know, it, it, opium has has taken root in in Chinese communities, and it it sort of went it came with them um, to when they when they came to um, Sinaloa and areas of the western United States to build the, the railroads. Um, and so by by the 1920s, you know, the, some of the more organized drug smuggling was being done by these sort of Chinese syndicates many of which were um, related to these organizations called Tongs, which I think you talked about on the system. Yeah, the like sort of merchant guilds kind of things. Exactly, exactly. And so the reason that I find this so important, um, this, this sort of ethnic cleansing episode, is that it wasn't just about the drug trade. It was about the formation of modern Mexico. You know, there was Mexico came out of the revolution really bruised and fractured and many areas of the country were sort of run by by these warlords and there wasn't really a unified mexican identity and so there was a, a sort of a group of of intellectuals in the 20s and 30s some of them who were like kind of fascist actually um who were trying to sort of synthesize this mexican identity they understood that to have a, a sort of a republic with with many different regions and and you know very sort of inaccessible rural areas, they needed to forge this identity, and they came up with this idea of sort of the the, the cosmic race of the um, mestizo, you know, the, this mix of Spanish and indigenous blood, and there was no room in that for Chinese, and so they they you know as 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 good nationalists always do, they found a scapegoat, and the scapegoat was the Chinese. And they, you know, they blamed the Chinese for corrupting Mexican youth with their opium and their marijuana, and so this this ethnic cleansing was pretty foundational to the to the sort of creation of a of a um or, or not you know it it was a big part of this you know forging of a new mexico mm. and it also was useful for mexican gangsters who wanted to get in on the on the drug trade and so we see this sort of um you know from the beginning this this union between the interests of drug traffickers and gangsters and the interests of the Mexican state. Yeah, I mean, and we rattle all the way up through to the 1970s when El Chapo's kind of a young young kid. And, you know, this relationship is really cosy, entrenched. And I mean, they, they, it seems like the state pretty much picked and chose who they wanted to get big and, and they, they could destroy plantations or, you know, levy taxes on some people. They're pretty much just like king yeah. making, right? Well, it, it was essentially a state-run protection racket, you know? Mm. It was like in, you know, the, the way that the mafia developed in, in immigrant neighborhoods in the United States was that they would do protection rackets, right? They would say, hey, 
you know, we'll protect you if you give us a, give us some money. And really that's just extortion, right? It's not real protection, but the way that it worked in Mexico is that, um, you know, the, the, the local authorities would, um, have sort of a, a, a designated trafficker that they would work with someone who was discreet and understood politics and knew how to keep people under control. And so that, that drug trafficker would sort of, you know, would collect taxes from people operating in his area and he would pay the state. And so anyone who didn't pay taxes would be subject to the law, essentially, you know, because the drug trade was illegal, it allowed this greater control by the state because they could, uh, you know, they had an excuse to arrest you or kill you or confiscate your drugs um, if you weren't playing ball with them. Mm. And so, so, you know, through, through the, the thirties, the forties, the fifties, this sort of um, state run protection racket, which was known as the, the plaza system, you know, a, a designated area was known as a plaza mm. um, that, that developed uh, and that was sort of um, the way things were done pretty much up until El Chapo was, uh, was entering the drug trade. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned this um, episode in 1975, so he's, what, 18, uh, 17 or whatever, and it shows this kind of capricious hand of the state, I guess, where this team of state troopers emerges from free helicopters in a town next to Latuna, looking for young men involved in one of the cartels. And when these guys can't find anybody, they open fire on some young boys, uh, two young boys, and they injure them both, and then they claim the boys had actually fired first, because, of course, and... El Chapo's sister actually refers to this episode in a later documentary saying, quote, they didn't allow us to say anything. So I guess you have this general lawlessness or this general kind of arbitrary idea of law. And the country doesn't really function on justice or fairness. It's like more a place of case of who has the most clout or who's shaking the most hands wins. So that's the world that El Chapo grows up in. And he's strutting around in gold chains and he's keeping fake banknotes wanting to be rich. He leaves school after elementary and he's said to be illiterate. Although, I mean, is that actually the case? I, I don't know. I, I think he's, I think he's like, uh, I think he's like somewhat literate, you know, during the, during the trial, he would often be writing notes. And, um, you know, he, we know that he did sometimes text like on, you know, later on, way later, he would, uh, he, he used blackberries to, to, um, communicate with his, with his lovers and associates. He, he thought they were, um, they were more secure. It, it turned out oh, they were not. Oh <laughs> but so, so the point being that yes, El Chapo was not fully illiterate. I don't think he was necessarily a big reader. Um, but you know, I think he had, uh, he had other kinds of, uh, kinds of street smarts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at some point when he's really young, um, El Chapo gets in with the brothers Beltran Lieber, um, who aren't far from Latuna, right? I mean, how did that all happen? Like, what, yeah. So, what, yeah. So the, the, the Beltran Leva brothers grew up in this little village called La Palma, which is um, on the, on that, you know, I mentioned that little dirt track to Latuna. La Palma is on the way. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of, as you mentioned, really well-known drug traffickers are from this really small little area. You know, the Beltran Levas mm-hmm. are from La Palma. This guy named El Azul is from um, I think this town, this nearby town called Wixiopa. Like it's it's um, you know 
all of these very well-known people are from this area. And so he, he was like, it's unclear what his relationship was with them. He might've, they might've been cousins. I mean, everyone's, everyone's cousins up there, but um, <laughs> so they, they were sort of entering the drug trade together and they were entering the drug trade um, around this time where, um, all right, I'm going to talk about Operation Condor. Um, so around the time that El Chapo and the Beltran Leva brothers were getting involved with the drug trade, the, 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 the status quo was sort of starting to break down a bit in Sinaloa. Mm-hmm. And a big reason for that was um, this, uh, this military operation, which is known as Operation Condor, not to be confused with the um, you know, sort of state terror operation in, in South America against <laughs> leftists. Yeah. Uh, so Operation Condor was um, basically the, the Mexican government was under great pressure from the Nixon administration to, um, to confront the production of drugs in Mexico. Um, you know, as, as, as I'm sure our listeners will know, like the, you know, the war on drugs is often used as sort of a, a cudgel by the United States to get other, you know, Latin American governments in line. And the, the U S sort of decides when it does and does not care about drugs. But in this, in this moment, you know, they wanted to sort of get Mexico city under control. And they were saying, Hey, look, you need to take care of this, you know, all of this, um, all of this heroin is being grown in and and produced in Western Mexico. You need to get get a, a handle on that. And so the the the, the federal government was like, uh, uh, okay, cool, we'll do that. And they they send in this this huge military operation. Um, to, you know, they the, in 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 Culiacan, there's military trucks rumbling around the city. I spoke with people who lived there at the time, and they remember it as just this like you know a state of siege, really. Um, and in the mountains, it was much worse. You know, troops were going in. They were, um, you know, destroying uh, drug crops. They were spraying these really toxic, um, like, herbicides that, um, you know, killed anything, really. Uh, and, and so th- there's, uh, I, there's still this sort of level of, uh, I think, sort of collective trauma and memory of, of this era as one of just, you know, basically outright war with the state. And it wasn't really, uh, I mean, it, it, it did, Operation Conduit did manage to um, depress production of opium and marijuana in um, the mountains of, of Sinaloa and Durango for a period of time. But what it really did was reorganize the drug trade. Many traffickers actually left the state and sort of moved to different areas of Mexico. Uh, and the drug producing regions moved as well. You know, the, they, they expanded into the state of Zacatecas, um, into Guerrero, and uh, even, you know, as far south as, as like Oaxaca and, and Chiapas. Um, but in Sinaloa, what happened was it had always been, this, this state protection racket that I, that I, that I spoke about had, had been run really by local authorities. And essentially what Operation Condor was, was a power grab by federal authorities, you know, the, um, the attorney general's office, which is known as the PGR, um, the, uh, there was this secret police 
agency called the uh, Federal Federal Security Directorate, the DFS. Um, and so the you know the PGR and the um, and the Federal Judicial Police and the DFS um, really sort of took over the control this the control of the drug trade from state and local authorities. And you know, we, I think we see this again and again that these the sort of stated goals of of a anti drug campaign are you know we're going to destroy the drug trade, and that never happens. But what does happen is these ulterior motives of sort of you know rearranging control, and so that was around the time as well that um, that El Chapo uh, and and others sort of were forced to leave um, Sinaloa so that they could work elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I guess the like broader war on drugs, wherever it is, is kind of like the biggest petri dish for kind of disingenuous state bullshit. Um, yes, and and Mexico is no different. Um, yeah, and I, I just wanted to like take a quick diversion at this point because I want to mention women uh, in El yep. Chapo's life as well. Um, so he marries his first wife, Alejandrina Maria Salazar, in nineteen seventy seven, and he's barely twenty. And they have three kids together, but he soon moves on to another woman, um, a bank teller. He's said to have kidnapped so he could marry her. Is that true? I I don't know enough about that episode to really comment on it. Um, but that that is what that is what that is uh, what they say. Yes, yeah. and and he marries a third woman, Griselda Lopez Perez, and he has four kids with her. And you write that it's unclear whether he even divorced any of these women at all. I mean, this all sounds exhausting to be honest um but like i guess he's definitely a narco by that point albeit like a pretty small time one in the in the grand context and i i'm just mentioning all of this because like some of the grimmest stuff to come out of the trial was actually to do with his actions against women um can you tell us a little bit more about that because it really sort of smashes the romantic idea of this robin hood narco legend sort of into the long grass a little bit yeah, I think I think that the 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 sort of darkest stuff that we know about El Chapo personally is his treatment of women, and you know I, I think even in the more you know even in the less like evil aspects of it, I, he probably wasn't the best husband. You know, you say like this sounds okay. exhausting, but I doubt that he was spending much time thinking about his relationships as like partnerships. You know, <laughs> so it's yeah. probably it's probably less less exhausting when you when you don't you know, have any desire to treat your wife well. Um, but so, you know, later on, um, when El Chapo was in prison for the first time in the 1990s, um, he would, you know, he would have, he would bribe the guards to sort of, you know, bring in sex workers and, and uh, you know, allow conjugal visits with his, his wives. And um, one of the women that he had a relationship with at this time was this woman named uh, Zulima Hernandez who was a, a prisoner at um, this, this prison, Puente Grande. She was like one of the only women prisoners there. And from, from what we can tell, they had a fairly consensual relationship. You know, they would, they would have, she said later that they would have long chats about his childhood and how he was, you know, he never, he was never going to be poor again. And, um, mm. but, but, you know, that, that sort of description, even by her clashes a little bit with some other reporting, um, notably by the Mexican journalist Annabel Hernandez, who wrote that uh, Zulima Hernandez was really, really badly mistreated. You know, she, she got pregnant 
by possibly by El Chapo and she was forced to have an abortion. And, you know, after he escaped in 2001, she was sort of just, you know, passed around um, by the guards. And so we, we begin to see a picture of El Chapo as this sort of womanizer. Right. And mm. you mentioned sort of, you know, grim stuff coming out of trial. One of the sort of, you know, one of the things that came out, not at trial, because it was actually in court documents that were um, suppressed during the trial. It wasn't allowed to come out in in evidence, but it, it, it was these court documents were unsealed actually just after um, the the final sort of the closing arguments, and there was a there was a, um, a, a sort of associate of El Chapo, um, this Colombian trafficker named Alex Cifuentes, who said that they would, um, you know, when they were hiding out in the mountains, this was like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, they would, um, you know, fly sex workers in to entertain them, and these these I mean these were they were often children, they were often you know very young girls, as, as young as as fourteen. And um, that is unverified. Uh, and Al- Alex Fuentes is not the most reliable narrator. Uh, I, I encourage you to, to you know, read, read the book to find out more about him. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, w- w- whether or not that's like everything that he said was true, I think it's pretty believable that El Chapo um, was not the, the strongest feminist. Right. That's very diplomatically put. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like, so we, we get to the formation of the Sinaloa cartel, I guess, with Condor. Um, and we've got this plaza system that you, that you mentioned before, that's kind of keeping everything pretty, pretty rigidly sort of structured, I guess. Um, and then we get to this guy called Pedro Aviles Perez and that he's called the mountain lion. And he's kind of the, Proto narco, right? Um, he comes through the ranks in Sinaloa in the 60s, pioneers the use of airplanes to smuggle opium and marijuana to the US during the hippie years. Um, that's right, by the way, free lovers. Your love of weed and smack was fueling the drug war south of the border, just like coke sniffing scald and geckos of the 80s. Um, yeah, and that's that's a really good point, actually, Sean. Is like the um, you know I talk about sort of the the place and time that El Chapo came from. And how I was interested in, in, in that almost more than his personal behavior as a, as a teenager, a young man. Yeah. And the, the hippie boom really sort of turbocharged the drug trade in Sinaloa. You know, there was this radically augmented demand um, because everyone in the U.S. was, was suddenly smoking a shit ton of weed. And it, um, you know, it, it had a really huge effect on Sinaloa. You know, everyone and their mother was becoming a drug trafficker. Julia Khan was becoming, you know, everyone was was rich and reckless and, you know, shooting their guns off in the air. And um, so Pedro Aviles was was really, you know, one of the big guys around at the time. Him and this other guy named uh, Lalo Fernandez, um, you know, they sort of were the the most um, I wouldn't call them high high ranking necessarily because I don't really think that there was that kind of hierarchy necessarily mm. but they were the most sort of stable and like connected to the state um, and so Aviles is 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 um, you know he, he's from uh, sort of around the same area as as El Chapo and he's often again 
you know, there's all of these sort of legends about where El Chapo, how, how El Chapo entered the drug trade. And one of the stories is that he was, you know, closely working with Pedro Aviles. I've never been able to confirm that. And I honestly, I'm, I'm not sure that I um, fully trust that because I think that there's a tendency sometimes to take sort of the, you know, the, 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 a few people whose names we know and say, oh, El Chapo was working with Pedro Aviles. You know, mm. I'm sure that they like came into contact um, but I, I was never able to um, to confirm that he was, you know, his his driver or his his um, you know his bodyguard. I was actually told that by a, a DEA agent who um, was working in Sinaloa at the time. But honestly, um, I think that sometimes we sort of like retrofit these histories. You know, I, I think oh, that this yeah, DEA sure. agent, you know, like I don't know if his recollection from the is from the 1970s or if it was sort of recreated. Later on, oh yeah, El Chapo worked with Pedro Aviles. But regardless, Pedro Aviles was sort of um, the uh, the the big dog around then. Um, mm. And I I, I mentioned uh, I mentioned Condor, uh, and you know, really the the biggest impact of Operation Condor was on peasant communities, and many of the big traffickers, uh, you know, were able to uh, survive that. Pedro Aviles did not survive Operation Condor. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, we get so we get into the end of the 1970s. Right. And and Condor is reaching its conclusion. And I guess this is a good time to quote from your book. So uh, here's, here's a bit of it. By the end of Condor, everything had changed. While the local cops still took bribes and worked on behalf of drug traffickers, they no longer ran the show. The operation wiped many of the old generation of drug traffickers off the map, particularly those who had become attracting attention from the United States, including Pedro Abilis whose name came up in scores of DEA investigations and was becoming a potential embarrassment to the politicos in Mexico City. Aviles and seven of his henchmen died in a hail of gunfire in a northern area of Culiacan, an ambush that looked a lot like a massacre. So, yeah, he definitely does not survive Condor. Um, and into Aviles' shoes steps Felix Gallardo. And this guy is going to transform everything. He's the head of the Guadalajara cartel, which precedes the Sinaloa cartel. And he basically draws Mexico and Colombia, where cocaine is produced, closer together. And he makes connections across Central America, including Honduras, and creates this like super highway of coke, basically, whose demand is going to go through the roof in the 1980s, as we know. Um, Gallardo is known to be a techie, and he spends tens of thousands of dollars on the latest radio equipment and other stuff, really professionalizing the drug industry. And he's also an expert politician, and he forges ties with leaders across the region, making sure nobody dares to go after his cartel. And because he's so powerful, his connections pretty much determine who the DEA and DFS go after, picking off a bunch of narcos, but never touching the big man himself. And I mean, if you've watched Narcos Mexico on Netflix, you know Gallardo, right? He's Diego Luna's character. Intelligent, ruthless, helping back the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. Um Helping back the Contras. Oh, the Contras. Oh, my God, of course. The Contras. See, I'm getting my condors wrong as well. Um, <laughs> he's getting, yeah, so he's getting wound up in around Contra. I mean, he's like just a huge character in the drug war. Um, I'm guessing you've watched the show, right? Is there any anything in there you thought was particularly bullshit, given all your research? Uh, I have watched the show, and it's it's interesting. There are... There are portions of that show that are clearly very well researched. Um, and one thing that was funny, um, you know, I, 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 by the time I watched, um, I think like the, 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 
by the time I watched like Narcos Mexico, I had, I had done enough research that I was sort of able to tell like which, which sort of like anecdotes came from which sources, you know, I was like, Oh, that's uh <laughs> You know, this is from this is from Drug Lord by Terrence Papa, and this is from uh, from that. So oh, that's it, great. You know, I'll, I'll give it to I'll give it to. This is the sort of one thing I'll give to Narcos is, is that they really did do their research. But <laughs> what you know, it's fiction. It's a fictional portrayal of of this time period, and and in fiction, you you know, you need a main character, and and in nonfiction, honestly, you need you need a main character. And the result is that this this focus on uh, Felix Gallardo um, really sort of um, it sort of uh, smooths out this very not smooth, very complex picture. And so, you know, there were a lot of drug traffickers operating at the time. I think Felix Gallardo was probably the sort of best connected, and I think pro- people were probably kicking up a lot to him in order to, you know, get the protection that he was able to offer. Um, but you know the 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 depiction of this sort of like you know monolithic hierarchical Guadalajara cartel was was not so accurate. And it's funny, you know, people in um, people in Sinaloa connected to the drug trade uh, watch Narcos. You know, much much the same as sort of the you know the mobsters in in mm. um, in, in uh, the Sopranos love mobster movies like. Fucking like real narcos in Mexico lo- love watching narcos, and I had this one um, really funny experience where I was um, I was interviewing this guy who was in a prison somewhere in in northern Mexico. I, I can't specify where, but um, you know I, I was I got into the prison, and we went to the the sort of like a, I would call it a cell block, but it's really just like a an open area. Um, with some with some buildings in it um and he was you know he had guys who were you know cooking like barbecuing ribs and and sort of <laughs> serving him they, they they were even wearing aprons and um you know we were talking there eating ribs and then he he brings me into his like air conditioned cell with like a, a king size bed in it and uh, a flat screen tv and he turns on the tv and he's got netflix and he turns on Narcos Mexico um, on the, the first episode, and he starts sort of pointing stuff out. He's like, that, that's accurate. That's accurate. Eh, that's kind of bullshit. That's kind of bullshit. So I, feel I got this sort of like this sort of narco tour of Narcos Mexico from this sort of pretty, uh, pretty heavy, heavyweight uh, trafficker who was uh, sort of, you know, running the show in this prison. And I guess, you know, I, I think like my, my biggest problem with, with um with shows like Narcos Mexico is that I just you know I think Narcos Mexico does a pretty good job of of sort of um describing the entanglement that traffickers have with the state but it also it just it simplifies things to a to a degree where people think that they understand everything about you know about Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo about um you know the the DFS about uh El Chapo, who is apparently going to be the star of the of the new season, and you know, it, but it, it actually really isn't that realistic of a picture. And so when I would when I started this book, I would you know a lot of people ask me like you know on 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 Twitter or even you know one time this um, I was going through customs at JFK and I, I had to mention I was in Mexico for work. What kind of work? Journalism. What kind of journalism? El Chapo. And this fucking guy is like. Uh, 
you know, hey, I, uh, how are you gonna how are you gonna get anything new? You know, I already watch Narcos. <laughs> yeah, like, I, man, this stuff becomes so, so, yeah, canon, so I think canon, right? That's the kind of exactly danger of this. exactly, yeah, 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 exactly. And so, you know, I, I did I did watch Narcos Mexico. I actually have never watched the. Um, there's a Netflix series just about El Chapo, and I never watched it because I didn't want to. You know, there's enough information out there already that I had to be careful about not sort of just writing into the book, that I had to be careful about sort of, um, you know, uh, not uh, coloring my perception. Mm. And so I actually, I, I avoided that show, El Chapo, even though I've, I've heard that the first couple seasons are actually quite well researched. Um, but I just, I didn't want to get sort of influenced by that at all because I know that, you know, people watch those shows and they think they understand the drug trade and it's not, you know, it, it, it's not a documentary. <laughs> How many times have you sat in a bar shitting on Netflix shows since you started doing that? A, fa- a fair amount. Yeah. Fair amount. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, Gallardo, whatever the truth of his kind of character is, um, I mean, he definitely blurs the lines between narcos, states, rebels, guerrilla fighters. I mean, creating this gigantic drug war mess, I guess, we're, we're currently in. Um, and the rise of the Guadalajara cartel coincides with the cocaine and heroin boom. It's not only Gallardo's international connects that are driving this. Over in Southeast Asia, heroin is going wild. And we'll get into that bunch in a later episode I really want to do about Kunsar. I mean, we've got stuff about that Southeast Asia uh, heroin. Yeah, I mean, well. you 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 see a lot of this like very similar dynamics, mm. right? Of sort of these these like local power brokers, these local warlords involved in the drug trade, but also involved as sort of almost like mini clients of the of the governments of the countries that they that they operate in. As you know, they help control the, the areas um, mm. which would otherwise be be hard to access and and hard to control. And, you know, you mentioned the, the Contras, like, we've never been able to make a firm link between Felix Gallardo or any of his um, sort of his partners and the CIA. There's been rumors. Um, but as, as far as I can tell, you know, they had, if not the direct backing of the CIA, they, had, they worked hand in glove with um, that secret police agency I mentioned, the DFS. And the DFS was closely allied with the CIA during this time. You know, Mexico City was sort of a, almost like a Casablanca of, of spies. And, you know, there was a Soviet embassy there. And the, the U.S. was very invested in, in sort of um, keeping Mexico within its sphere of influence as much as possible. And the DFS was, a, was you know, a, a fairly useful asset for the CIA. And that actually pitted the CIA against the DEA because the DEA was investigating um, Felix Gallardo and his, and his partners while the CIA was working closely with his partners in the DFS. And <laughs> so I think it's just, you know, it, that, that really shows us like how sort of contradictory us foreign policy can be and how ultimately, um, you know, ultimately notions of, of security and um, sort of, uh, you know, uh, security and political control mm. take precedence over anti-drug operations unless anti-drug operations can be used for that purpose, you know? Yeah, Sicario was a documentary, right? 
Mm. <laughs> um, Sokoya was actually pretty good. Sokoya too. I love that film. Yeah, Sokoya was, was terrible. Sokoya was was pretty on the money about you know the way in which um in which the U.S. sort of uh, chooses sides in the drug war. Yeah, and I, I think one of those the things that those kind of shows get really right is the fact that these agencies just fucking hate each other, right? I mean, they've all got different yes. plans. There's so much bravado going around as well. Um, yeah, it's a mess. I mean, I, I've kind of witnessed it in reporting about like the Nigerian gangs and stuff in Southeast Asia. It's yeah, it's a, it's a pretty massive dumpster fire. Um, but anyway, like at this time in in this kind of like in Gallardo's era, I guess like the profitability of coke or heroin is just like many many times more than weed, which is pretty labor intensive. And Americans are really starting to take over the marijuana industry domestically. So why have guys flying crop dusters full of weed across the border when you can just start producing cocaine and make like 10 times as much cash? And this comes at pretty much the same time the French Connection heroin route was getting busted for good by the feds. So there's a pretty huge gap in the market for South American smack. And I'm going to quote your book here again, uh, quote, the smugglers in Colombia needed to move coke. And in Mexican traffickers, they found willing partners with well-established smuggling routes. This pattern became known as the Mexican trampoline, as bricks of coke flew in from Colombia, landed in Mexico, and, with a great and satisfying boing, continued onto the United States. For producers, traffickers, and street dealers, coke just made sense. Without the headache of growing seasons, irrigation, and land that went along with weed and opium, trafficking cocaine was simply a matter of shipping. As a bonus, traffickers and dealers could cut it as much as they wanted with laxatives, lactose powder, or whatever else stretched one brick of coke into two or three. And yeah, I mean, that just shows this massive wave that's about to happen um, in the Mexican drug trade. And I think that's probably a good way to end part one of our chat. Um, if you want to listen to more, we're going to continue chatting now uh, and we're going to stick the rest of this conversation up on our Patreon. So yeah, listen, listen to Noah when he tells you how great that is, because uh, that'll be that'll be really useful. But uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for chatting to us for now, Noah. It's going to be weird because I'm just about to start talking to you <laughs> again and just put it on Patreon. Um, and I'll see you, I'll uh, see yeah. you very soon, Sean. Yeah, it's going to be a ride. Um, and yeah, for everyone else, like I said, give us good ratings. Uh, we've got the Patreon, we've got the merch, we've got everything going on. You know how to find us online. And uh, yeah, see you later. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.